Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Jay or John Spooner and this is the fourth episode in my attempt to honour and preserve the memory of Unlimited Theatre, an oral history of the company, how we formed, what we did and how we did it, or some of it at least, because 27 years is a long time, right? This episode is a conversation with my co-founder and wife, Liz Margri, who, as well as being a brilliant artist, was also Unlimited's first company manager, as well as a trustee once we became a charity. Liz now works as a psychologist and coach for senior leaders, so as well as her recalling her most vivid memories of her time with Unlimited and offering her advice for anyone starting out and setting up their own company now, she also reflects really interestingly on why she thinks we were such a high-performing team and how we unknowingly at the time created an environment of psychological safety. Welcome to the show and our home. We're glad you could make it. Who are you and how do we know each other? <laughs> I'm Liz Margaret, and we met at Leeds University yeah. and then we got married. <laughs> in, in that order, that literal Pretty much, order. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As you know, this is part of my attempt to honour and preserve the memory of Unlimited Theatre. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship with Unlimited Theatre? I was a founding member of the company mm-hmm. and I stayed in the company until maybe 2005 or six, maybe. So I was one of the founding makers and people that ran it. And then we had some babies and then I stopped touring for a couple of years and then I left. Yeah. So in that time, yeah. however long it was, so what, like 1996 to 2005 or six and yeah. beyond what are your most vivid memories of being in unlimited uh total joy absolute brutal hard work tenacity total commitment i don't know everything from backing batley to touring to hundreds of schools in huddersfield to being in the back of a van with a bath a toilet and some other bits of set and playing in a basement of a block of flats to, you know, getting a fringe first at Edinburgh, taking work abroad. Uh, Just a massive sense of vivid memories. I don't know. I don't think I've got vivid memories. I think I've just got this really beautiful sense of tribe or family and feeling... Well, actually, that we were like a really high-performing team. I think the work I do now, I think we were doing all of that stuff without knowing that we were totally brilliant in the way that we worked. That's a lot. (laughs) In fact, it was interesting. It's interesting the way you describe it because Lou was talking about, we're describing things in a similar way to you about not being able to remember specifically, but having like retaining the feeling of what that was. Yeah, I, I feel like I remember it as a chapter of my life, like a really dedicated chapter, which was really, really like hardcore fun. And I suppose, I mean, that's also to do with being 20, isn't it? It was my 20s. Unlimited was my 20s, basically. I left university, I ran a theatre company, then I had babies. So, so I think it's also wrapped up in that sense of identity that is pre-children and full of the possibility and freedom of that. And then you have babies and then you have to compromise everything all the time. So it's different. Mm. And 
I've spoken to the others, and Paul, for example, was talking about the romanticism of that time, that thing about living your early 20s, in particular, yeah. particularly for him, because he left first. But I was also reminding him of how practical we were as a company in yeah. terms of running it. And you've just spoken as well about the, the high-performing team part of it. Yeah. What is it that you do now that you see in what we were doing then and what was your role in that? The thing that I I was I wrote a list of all the stuff I thought we did, not for this actually, but because I was reflecting on for a piece of work that I'm doing now. I think the thing that Unlimited had was a really strong sense of shared purpose and value driven mindset and vision that we were absolutely all bought into. We were really good at psychological safety. So being really supportive of each other, but holding each other to account really clearly. We all were like actual adults in the way we behave with each other all the time. And we also really took care of each other. We were really good at celebrating our successes and having fun. And we all had really clear roles and took responsibility for the part that we played which wasn't always easy because, you know, we were in the early days, we were giving up individual freelance work and putting it into the shared pot. And that was a big deal. And I'm sure part of the reason why, you know, not everybody stayed together is that sort of tension around artistic freedom and financial independence and all of that. But in those in that decade, I think we all surrendered the ego of the individual in the service of creating a community. And I think I mean, I, you know, like every team I work with is like wants to do that. And most teams don't manage it. But I do think that comes down to vision. And I think Paul had a big part to play in that in the early days. I think my role in it was definitely pragmatic inside that. And I think probably I do think George Hardy, when he came and taught me what a cash flow was, <laughs> like it blew my mind. <laughs> I, like, OK, hang on one sec, just because the, uh, uh, that's a really good example. I just want to make sure that it's understood as well that primarily you're a brilliant artist and theatre maker and performer and deeply creative and fundamental to those devising processes that we went through. Yeah, they were fun and weird. The rat was weird, wasn't it? Talked about that with, <laughs> with Paul. Because <laughs> I thought that was Chris and you in the warehouse doing that. No, it wasn't in the warehouse. It was for Harvey Nicks. Did it at Harvey Nicks as well? At did their it in the Christmas party well. or something yeah. where I dissected a rat. <laughs> really, I mean... There was some strange stuff It was happened. also really unethical for the rat. Well, the rat was already dead and was <laughs> going to be food anyway. Yeah, so. okay, it was for snakes, wasn't it? Just saying that it wasn't just that that, was your, that wasn't your role. We were all artists inside that and you were really good at that. But it is important as well to know what your role inside the running of the company was because I think it should be documented that none of the rest of us I don't think would have been able to make the company function in a way that it did that allowed it to thrive develop grow survive mm. so you've mentioned George Hardy mm. but what was your role before we get to how we then met George what were you doing in the company beyond I think my work? title was general manager I was think it company manager company manager some sort of manager I can't remember and then executive director for a bit but I never really knew what that was my job we had a paper diary, because obviously we had like one wind-up computer. We had a paper diary and we kept like records of the work and we kept records of holidays. I wanted to make sure that everyone got the holiday that they needed because otherwise you just tended, everyone just tended to work all the time. So I tried to make sure that if people worked weekends, they got time back in lieu and stuff like that. And I tried to 
we had a thing called you are didn't we which meant ultimate responsibility mm. if you were the you are for something that meant it was on you to make happen and i think that helped because then everyone took that it's created clarity yeah yeah it did i was remembering with paul as well that the, when we set up when we all gave up our jobs you know our part-time jobs to do this full-time we all signed on to yeah. the dole and got housing benefit yeah but we also and i'm sure this must have been you made a really clear deal with ourselves that we would do that for only a certain amount of time, that what we would do would use that opportunity that was given to us by that public money yeah. to create a business that ran that allowed us to generate at least as much as that within a certain time frame. Do you yeah. remember how that worked? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we just... So, but then that's why we did then all that income generation stuff for all the education stuff. It was that. a clear target, right? It was like, yeah, in seven months' time, we will. Yeah, I mean, I don't really remember that, but I do remember, like, finding a partnership agreement and writing a partnership agreement that we all signed so that everyone was clear around what they could expect and how people were going to get paid. And I remember always, in the early days, trying to get to a point where we could pay, pay ourselves. I mean, I think we started with, like, 100 quid a month or something, didn't we? But that was quite a big deal, £600 a month. So, yeah, I remember really, I remember being really focused on that. But that is... That was that whole cash flow shenanigans. Okay, so we set this target. We knew that we needed to generate enough income that yeah. was the equivalent of us, what we received from Dole and housing benefits so that we could not do that. I mean, we did loads of cold calling. <laughs> we spent hours and hours and hours. It was all On one phone line. We would phone like 50 primary schools a day and then we'd phone them all back the next day plus the new round. Like It was like telesales. There was a period of time in Unlimited which was basically telesales where you were phoning <laughs> all the producers and the venues. Me and Louisa, I think, maybe Claire, were phoning literally every school in the whole of Yorkshire. I think we all had a rotor for phoning. It I was, think everyone did the yeah. cold calling. Please, can I speak to... Yeah. And the secretaries would all go. But that's oh. also part of why that... in those That's how we got to earning a bit of money, was that we just... And we wrote loads of letters to people. What was that corporate thing called? Claire designed it. Oh, it was the fire training thing. No, or it was called, like, entered some... It was rhyming... Oh, man, I can't remember what it was called. Entertaining training. Entertaining training. <laughs> it was called Entertaining Did that ever actually happen? Yeah, we did. I mean, I'm not sure how entertaining it was, but we definitely did. I mean, we got a few corporate gigs. Fortunately, not too many because we didn't know what we were doing. But anyway. So inside all of this, and again, speaking to Paul in particular, what we were reflecting on was that we had no idea what we were doing or how to do it. Any idea of the structures or systems that needed to be in place to make a show, actually. And that was the thing that we were, if anything, experts in, right? But running a company... I think experts is a strong description. Well, do you know what I mean? But that was... Yeah, I agree with you. But what I mean is, because that's exactly what we were saying, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just making it up as we went along. And you look back and go, well, now I know all the systems and structures and mm. how to do that. It's insane that we didn't know that. But in the same way, we didn't know how to run a company, right? Mm. A business. Mm. So, George Hardy... Well, I won the Young Enterprise at school for my nativity figures. I was the regional winner. So I think I brought that. To the table. First time I met you, you told me that you were a junior figure skating <laughs> champion. That turned out to not be true. So, you know, I don't know how. Genuinely, I think uh, as an enabler of the business side of the company, we were given a mentor through arts and business. And he was called George Hardy. And at the time he worked, I think, for Ernst & Young. And he would come to our offices at Air Street after work 
like a half six at night, everyone had gone home and we would sit down together and he, he explained two things to me. He explained what an annual budget was, which was a revelation, but the biggest revelation was a cash flow because I did not know what a cash flow was. And he was so lovely and supportive and never patronising. And it was the cash flow that kept the company. Without that, we would have been absolutely screwed. Mm. So I think that is the, genuinely, I do think that is the, that's the thing I'm always most grateful for. I think cash flow kills most companies and businesses, doesn't it, when they're starting out? It's like, oh. Well, you don't have one. I think, you know, lots of early conversations I have maybe had across the years with young companies is that you don't, you're focusing on the work Mm. and there is no guarantee of money. And also we were lucky because there were six of us. So that would mean that while maybe two of us were trying to book a tour, two of us were touring Gilbert and the Goblin. So that was like 200 quid of debt. So there was, I, I do think the strength in numbers meant that we were able to, what's the word, like spread out the different demands that are involved in terms of actually running a company and making some money so that we could pay ourselves a bit. I remember you describing George sat with you and you showing him our budgets and showing how, because you literally accounted to the penny. You were brilliantly it was like anyone not presenting a receipt just didn't get paid and it was to the penny i remember george going you're going to show me this to the penny i'm normally accounting to the nearest ten thousand. <laughs> yeah, the nearest ten thousand well. pounds but that's what i mean he was never like patronizing about it he was really respectful of the scale that we were operating at but yeah but we that's because every penny it did matter we didn't have we didn't have any money It's hilarious because George is now, and at the time, that's like 25 years ago, at the time he was relatively junior inside Ernst & Young. He's now a senior partner at Ernst & Young. I've been in touch with him recently. He joined the board as well, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He's lovely. He came to all the shows. Yeah. It was a really nice relationship. What other vivid, do you have any other vivid memories from that time, like sat in an office? Can you try and describe what that office was like? Well, there was two offices. So there was one office where we had the one computer and Louisa and Kirsty were also running another business involving mm. flyers for a club. So I remember sometimes we would stay late and well, they pack paid flyers for, for that cash, of, Yeah, they, they paid for that office and we paid our share of the rent on it by stuffing bags full of... Like goodie bags and stuff as well, weren't they? Flyers, there was sweets in yeah, there. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. Which would then get handed out to that's people right. coming out of nightclubs. So but it would be that. like literally four o'clock in the morning in this freezing cold warehouse. We'd be stuffing those bags full of Jolly Rancher sweets. Yeah. Uh, and then the other office, the lovely part of that was when Lee shared a wall mm. and painted at one end. A beautiful artist. So that was really nice. And I remember he, that was when he was doing that big, he had that big series of work with that actor. Kenneth Williams. That's right, yeah. There was a picture of Kenneth Williams. It was, you're right, it was a huge canvas yeah. on one wall at the bottom of the office and he was painting a picture of Kenneth Williams, shirtless, wearing an apron, hoovering up a rug that yeah, was Kenneth right. Williams' own face. And I occasionally think... we'd just stop and Lee would go, what do you think? And we'd have a little chat about how his art was going. I mean, I think you always romanticise the period of time, don't you, that you're looking back on. So I think, I mean, there's many, many excellent, vivid memories of high fun and all of that. And then I think, you know, there's also many, many days of slogging around random towns on tour, filling time in the day out of your B&B before you do a show to 25 people. But that that's part of the deal, I suppose, isn't it? It is. Tell us what you do now. 
now I've got my own business and I'm a psychologist and coach and I work in organisations doing coaching and working with leadership teams to help them work well together. How did you come to that? So while we were on tour, I started a psychology degree through the Open University so that I could go and be in a warm library while I was waiting for the shows to st- for us to, Is that for why our you call did time. It? Yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, I did. Because I wanted something to do because I just found it really, I found it really soul-destroying just being in, I don't know, some random place. So yeah, that's why I started it because I've always, I always regretted that I hadn't done psychology at university. Uh, so then I did my undergrad and then had Riri while I was finishing that. And then when Oliver was three, maybe, or f- two, I don't know. Anyway, when they were little, then I did a master's in occupational psychology and then I started this business. Well, officially I started it in 2009, but I was doing associate work from 2006, which is why I think that's sort of when I left Unlimited. That's that sort of period where mm. I left. You were definitely still working as exec director, whatever that means, in 2004 yeah. and five, because I have a really vivid memory of you doing a meeting with Mark Hollander, who was our drama officer at the time, in the office in Air Street in Leeds, breastfeeding Rory. I think I was still doing a show because I think we did Zero Degrees and Drifting at Sheffield. Could it be magic? Oh, was it called Could It, it Became Could It Be Magic? No, it became Zero Degrees. I did it? Yeah. That was 2004. Three. It was 2003 we did that in Sheffield. Oh, could it be magic? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then 2004 was zero degrees because right. Rory had been born that summer and I was directing that. Yeah. Only Chris. And Sarah was Marianne in that rather than yeah. me, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Sarah Belcher. And what is it that you've taken from your, you know, it's a good 10 years working, running a company, making work as an artist inside mm. a company? both collective work that we made together, but also bits of solo work that you made as well. You made a brilliant oral walking tour of Leeds in conversation with refugees that were coming to Leeds called Trodden. Mm -hmm. What is it from that time that you still use in your work now, working in organisations, doing that coaching and leadership development in very commercial organisations? I think the fundamental thing is the absolute belief that you can make it happen. And you can start with nothing and trust that you'll create a thing that will be excellent. I think that one of the biggest gifts Unlimited gave, certainly, I suppose, in the way that we work together, was just our massive sense of belief that we could do it. We were lucky because of the conditions that we were working in at the time and the support that we got, both funding but also from the university. But I think it built a massive sense of self-efficacy for us as a group of people and certainly for me since yeah and I think I mean it also meant that I don't think I could ever actually be employed I really like the autonomy of running a business so it also gave me that I agree I think it would be interesting to see well either of us probably (laughs) well you're gonna have to crack that nut aren't you (laughs) um yeah it's gonna be I think a lot of people are really interested to see how that works well maybe you should do a follow-up podcast a year from now Uh, So that's really cool to hear. And that, again, absolutely reflects some stuff that both Paul and Lou have spoken about. Is there anything that you would do differently? Is there anything you look back on and go, oh. 
I probably would have been naked less on stage. <laughs> I don't think we needed to do that as much as we did. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's probably the one thing. <laughs> Although at the time we all seemed to enjoy it. But seriously, what would I have done differently? I'm not sure that any of us did enjoy it, actually. Everyone talks about it. Why did we do that? What would I have done differently? I would have definitely treated us each to a green leotard for Gilbert and the Goblin so I didn't have to wear... You'd have two rather than yeah, one. Yeah, that was disgusting, sharing costumes. <laughs> it's from Fall. And there was no need. We definitely could have stretched to another green leotard. Uh, but we didn't, it's not like we found that leotard. No. We didn't, we didn't buy it or make it. It was in the costume store. But then you wore it store. and then I wore it. It's yeah, disgusting. It went straight into the suitcase, all the <laughs> costumes. Disgusting. And you'd get it the uh, next day because you were on shift or whatever and it would still be wet from... It was horrible. Mm. I think the thing that is the sort of defining piece I have for that period of time is I don't really have any regrets. I don't regret what we did or how we worked together. I think the, like, the schoolwork and the community work that we did, I think, was really excellent. It had loads of integrity and it made, especially all the youth group stuff Claire did and Louisa did, like it made a mat. I probably would have commuted less to Leeds from Berkhamsted when I was pregnant with Ruri to run youth groups. There was no need for me to do that. That was quite tiring. I don't, honestly, I don't, I can't really think of anything I would do differently. What would you have done differently? I think I agree because it's such a huge learning process. I really agree that we were really effective and efficient. I suppose what I'm just checking in on is with this to go, what's the learning to come out of it? But I think the learning is all really positive. And even when it was difficult, it was kind of what you were talking about. We, for the most part, I think, really looked after each other. Um, And were I mean, big things happened to people during it, during the company. So different people had different experiences that were really full on. But that's the nature of being a human, isn't it? So like, I don't think, and you navigate that as you can, as you work it out. And there's lots of other structures, systems, companies, organisations that you could be working in where it wouldn't be as supportive. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think no regrets. Cool. But also we were in our 20s. So, well, I was in my 20s through it. So I do think that's quite a, it's a particularly privileged time, isn't it, in terms of you are more, well, maybe people aren't now, but definitely I think that there was a quality of, I don't know, you were quite focused on yourself, weren't you? We were making work, but we were in this little bubble. We didn't have any responsibilities no, anywhere else. No, that's what I mean. We didn't have children. Uh, we weren't doing elder us... care. We weren't worrying about children. We weren't juggling childcare. We weren't thinking about what a mortgage was. I mean, you... We didn't own anything as well. No. So it's not like we had to even look after any stuff. No. Let alone people. No. So it was easier, I suppose, is what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easier to have no regrets or to not. And to have it as a learning experience. Yeah. So you mentioned George Hardy as someone that you really valued the support of. Yeah. Who are the other people that, beyond the six, the founders, that you look back on and go, we really couldn't have done it without them? Mark Hollander. Mm-hmm. Always. Mark Hollander because? He was our relationship manager at the Arts Council when I was responsible for sort of leading the arts applications for stuff. And he was just brilliant, so helpful, really constructive in his feedback, really wise in his counsel and advice, always available 
to have a conversation, straight talking, totally one of my favourite humans through Unlimited. And he's been, a you know, an absolute stalwart for the company, right, in so many guises. So he played a massive part. And I don't think we would have been anywhere near as successful as we were through project funding and then eventually MPO without his guidance and advice. Just really helpful. I should also say just because Mark is like... Then when he left Arts Council, he came and joined the company as exec director. Yeah. Well, he was on the board after that. He was on the board after he left as exec director. Yeah. Uh, and he's just come back now. So he's leading. He's the fund manager for the Unawards well, going forward. that's perfect. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. Someone that really gets, understands the company. Annie Lloyd. Always. The absolute mother of the company. I would say probably the same thing that I've said about Mark, except with an artistic lens. Really supportive, just brilliant in every way. Really challenging creatively, really welcoming and supportive with the way she offered that space, both for us to perform in, but also to rehearse in and also just to be like this sort of compass. I felt like she was both the anchor and the compass for the arts in that region because she just had such perspective, but was so fun as well to hang out with. But then I think also other people like Tony Lee, who was that person who came on one of Paul's and mine's first corporate training programs. And I'm saying him because he got he was really passionate about the company. So the other person I'm thinking of is Alex Gammy. So that first Edinburgh where she came and did the PR for us and we were like, what is this? She was amazing. And she just was like, yeah, of course we'll get you in the newspapers. And newspapers, I sound like such an old person. Um, but I, the reason I those two people come to mind is because they were just such encouragers, such advocates of the company and that generosity of enthusiasm that said, yeah, do it. That I think that was really important because although I was saying earlier about we were being in a bubble, it also therefore felt like we were doing it on our own. So having people come in. Mm. But then I would also say, I mean, there's so many people. I think Third Angel made a massive difference because they were our contemporaries and they were doing different, brilliant, brilliant work. And again, were also really lovely. So I also think the network of companies that we were plugged into made a really big difference. Mm. Alex Gammy doing the PR I've never had this ever since she came to so many rehearsals and stuff like oh, she, she traveled so from lovely. London to be in like really cold warehouses in, Ar in Armley where we were rehearsing to see the show being made and in progress she was lovely she is lovely yeah she's got such a big heart yeah what was the question who are the other people all our parents I think mm -hmm. in the early days when we'd all go and we'd go on tour and then like Paul's mum and dad, we'd all go and stay with Paul's mum and dad or, or my mum and dad yeah. or sometimes even I'm sure your folks as well. And yeah. like Louise's mum would come and see us in Edinburgh. I think I do think we were very lucky to have such a support and Claire's mum and dad. Like everyone, everyone came. Chris's mum, like everyone was just really, I mean, they must have been like, what are they doing? But they were really, <laughs> I never really got that vibe from anyone. Everyone was just like, yeah, come and stay if you're doing a show in 
Chichester and yeah and we'll put you all up and make you breakfast and there'll be pizzas when you get back from the show like they were just really welcoming but listening to you talking about it it reminds me that you know it wasn't for random reasons that these people were encouraging and supportive they must have felt the special thing that was happening here with this big group of young people yeah maybe doing the thing and doing things that other people weren't yeah yeah definitely and making shows and experiences and projects in whatever context be it in theatres or be it in youth groups or community centres that weren't happening otherwise and it's a really lovely thing to hear you talk about it in that way and remind me that it was special actually you know those people wanted to support something because they saw it being good yeah I, I guess so I suppose you know I suppose you, you know reflecting back it was quite a big deal that there were six people out of university who stayed together and made a company work and we were all really good friends as well yeah we or had still are. fun yeah. do have fun What would you now offer as advice to anyone, that, something that you learned from Unlimited specifically? What would you offer to them if they were starting up, setting up a company now? Mm. I think it's a really different landscape. So I don't know if our experience and advice from the 90s could be relevant now. It's like when people ask me how I started my current business. And I was like, well, I mean, it started in 2006. So the way that I did business development and sort of still do you know it's not how you do it now I I don't know in my head I'm thinking about it from a a sort of making work point of view and I'm also thinking about it from running a company point of view I think the making work my advice would be to like have outside in viewpoints like external points of reference who you can return to to road test your thinking like Annie Lloyd or you know, so I think cultivating those relationships for the work to help make the work better, a bit like you might do as an editor writer, but to to really focus on that. So I think the relationship piece is super important because then that helps you make your work better. I think from a running a company point of view, it depends on how many of you, but like literally number one, work out what a cash flow is and get a cash flow and spend time agreeing your way of working with each other. Don't assume that it will happen. I think you've got to be even more explicit. I think you've got to bring the way that you set up the rehearsal room for performers to succeed creatively. You've got to bring that mindset into how you run a team so people feel safe and feel like they can say what they like and don't like and then work it all out. That would be my advice. I hard agree. I often reference, and it was because it was you that made us do it, you referenced this earlier, the partnership agreement right at the beginning. That was literally one page of A4. It was a couple of hundred words, which just outlined, this is what we're going to do. This is what we commit to doing. This is the time frame we're going to do it over. And we all signed it. Mm. And that was the partnership agreement. You don't need anything more than that. It's literally just. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I, I can't remember how we must have got it. Maybe through Leeds Tech or something like that. Arts and business. Clive Howarth, he would be another person I'd put on my list of people. Clive Howarth. Yeah. Who was Clive Howarth? Oh, he ran Leeds Tech. Training and Enterprise Council. That's right. And all of that corporate stuff started because he reached out to me because another company had pulled out of some conference they were running. (laughs) We we did like the keynote at this conference in Leeds where we just... 
I think we got delegates up on stage to hold canes with their palms, with their eyes shut, and just like push and push them around. And on the back of that, Clive was like, "I think you're on something. Let's uh, let's make some work together." And then actually, on the back of that, we got a big program of contract with them, which was called Goldmind, which was about creativity and business. But again, Clive was another person who was just, I spoke to him very recently, actually, because he just retired and he reached out. He was really supportive and thought it was excellent what we were doing. And he was always really wise and generous with his time when I was like, what am I doing with Auto Trader? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to run a workshop. I found photos from that gig with Auto Trader, that first Auto Trader gig recently. It's hilarious. <laughs> Like me, Louisa and Chris. I think we did quite a lot of forum theatre, didn't we? Yeah, but we were all wearing like what we understood to be corporate wear, <laughs> like suits. But we didn't have suits. So it's all we looked proper charity shop. And, you know, Chris looking as uncomfortable as he ever does wearing a suit. That's funny. Is there anything else that you would like to just throw in to make sure is preserved, good, bad, whatever? I don't think so. Cool. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Liz. In the next episode, I'll be talking to another of my co-founders and one of my longest serving and best friends, Chris Thorpe. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share, please do get in touch on Instagram, Facebook, or if you really must, Twitter, where Unlimited is at untheatre on all of them. Or you can just email me at j, just the letter j, at unlimited.earth. This podcast is written and produced by me, Jay Spooner. Editing and sound design is by Oliver Spooner. The intro and underscore music you heard at the beginning and during my conversation with Liz was composed and recorded by David Edwards, a.k.a. Minotaur Shock, for Unlimited's 2009 production, The Moon, The Moon. The track you're listening to right now is also by David from The Moon, The Moon and is called You're Safe Here. I've chosen it because it uses and remixes brilliantly and beautifully, I think, Debussy's Claire de Lune, which is one of our family's favourite pieces of music. I'm going to leave it playing in full here. Enjoy.